in my mind, coming from a big company, there's no room for failure. There's no such thing as failure. And I never came to terms with the fact until recently that some things could fail. You never know. Being alone has its advantages. Wherever you have free time, I sat, well, I had free time, I sit down and I really enjoy being with myself. I'm not on to my next thing. I have time to think, I like time to collect my thoughts and just being with myself. And I think that's an important part of me growing up because you're only truly comfortable with someone else if you're comfortable with yourself. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Jeremy Tan. He's the co-founder of Pin Men Capital, a venture capital firm that invests primarily in B2B technology startups focused on Southeast Asia. Before Tin Men, Jeremy actually started as a first-class chemical engineering graduate from Cambridge, trying to break in the world of finance. He worked his way up and had a 17-year-long career in corporate, landing senior executive roles at global multinationals like Morgan Stanley, Trafigura Group, Puma Energy, and more. Outside of work, Jeremy's also a father and loves soccer. Hi, Jeremy. So nice to meet you. I think I've met Merle before. I've seen a lot of Tin Men Capital. I've met John as well, but I haven't actually gotten to meet you. So it's quite funny that you're the first one I get to interview here. So I think I'll be getting to know you throughout the next one hour. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry to miss you the last time you were in Singapore. I think I was traveling then. Finally, I've read a lot of your writings and so on. So finally, great to meet in, oh, at least over the screen, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited for this. Well, I'm going to go straight away with the questions. The first question we ask everyone is, what was your childhood like? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up in a family with very modest means. My dad was one of like seven kids and so on. He did not have a formal education, dropped out at high school. Mom's the same as well. So when they had me, they had me very young, you know, 20, 21. And they used to tell me that they didn't even have the money to buy me the milk powder until he struck the lottery using my birthday, right? So maybe that gives a sense of, uh, uh, you know, how the, the, the background of my family. I grew up in a, I guess, consider a one room, HDB flat in Topayo, uh, where there's no room actually, it's the living room. So oh. It's a studio. <laughs> a studio, I guess. Maybe a big yeah. studio. <laughs> yeah, it's a big studio. That started as a custom officer, cigarette salesman, and then being a car salesman, right? So we grew up really, really modest. Got our first HDB flat in Tampanese, then we moved. I would say that my childhood is uh, very simple, very happy, and I was very happy-go-lucky, right? My parents have very low expectations just to get to the Singapore University and you're set. <laughs> so that was expectation, right? Um, I guess life uh, turned around a little bit more when my dad became, uh, he said, look, I've got three kids. I need to do something different than, apart from being an employee. 
So he that really pushed him out to be entrepreneurial. He came out and he started on his own. So he bought a car. I remember washing the car for him and then he sold the car, hopefully make a profit. And then slowly rolling the profit to buying more cars and started a car dealership. I have two siblings, a sister and a younger brother. I uh, did not study much, to be honest. <laughs> it was more into playing and playing marbles as a, as a young kid. I'm not sure people these days do that anymore. Playing football, football is my passion, still is. I remember passing by on a PIE, looking over the school, uh, which is a Victoria school. Um, my mom does say that it's a very good school. And uh, I was like, okay, that's where I'm going to go. <laughs> right. So I went there, best four years of my life in Victoria school, boys school. Um, we did everything but study. Um, and I remember at the mid year, secondary four, I, the results came back. I had uh, 24 points for my best six subjects or my six year. That's right. And the teacher told me that you're not going to get any JC with oh. that score. <laughs> oh so I think that was a wake up call for me. Um, I was like, wow, okay, I got to do something about this. So I studied, we got 12 points in prelims. And then by affiliation, thankfully, VJC accepted me. Then in the end, got nine points and was VJ all the way. So I'm not sure how far back childhood means. I can go all the way to the army and you tell me where you want me to go. <laughs> so I'm curious, how did you end up getting into Victoria JC? Is it like this sort of placement thing? I don't really know the Singaporean system or is it as easy as saying like, oh, I want to go to that school, then you can probably get in. No, you need uh, good grades, uh, essentially. I mean, I, I, I was good at certain things, but wasn't talented enough that they want me to you know, go in because of football and so on, right? 12 points, actually, it's not good enough to get in, but because uh, Victoria School and Victoria JC are affiliated, so we had some, I guess, uh, you can shave off a couple of points and um, and we, we I managed to get in through that, right? Um, and in JC, I was very thankful, but I I, I remembered that, <laughs> yep, I, I can play, but I just need to do enough and not leave it to the last minute because it's very painful, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. In fact, to get an actual exams itself at all levels, I didn't have time. So I actually spotted questions. And what I mean by that is I, dis- I tried to anticipate what questions are going to come out. And <laughs> I studied. And thankfully, those questions came out. So very lucky. Um, JC, I was very active. Uh, I was I never believed in just studying. I, I was a student's counsel. I, start, uh, I pushed for the uh, first uh, VJC football team uh, to be formed. Um, had a great time there, and though not as great as, you know, Victoria School, where I felt really a lot of my values, friendship have been formed. A lot of my character building has been formed to um, sports, supporting school, being a student leader and so on. Um, and until today, I keep in touch with those these friends, yeah, and still look back at, at those very fondly. No worries at all, you know, just being a student. So that was good times. Then I went to the army. And at that point, I knew that I was I want to go overseas and, and to study. So I applied. Um, and but, but you know, I my grades were good, but I did not do any you know special papers and so on, nothing compared to those scholars. And actually, I think something happened that really changed my life. I was in the final year of my, uh, my military service. By then I gotten into a couple of universities. Um trying to find uh, funding for it. 
And then someone that I didn't know just dropped by the table at the canteen in the military base. And I was a friend of mine, a friend of my friends. And they said, yeah, by the way, you know, do you know that the application for Cambridge was due, uh, is due in a couple of days time. You should apply. And I'm like, and I didn't even think about it. Right. So that kind of reflects on how poorly I planned my life. Then I just kind of go with the flow and I say, all right, I'll apply. What's there to lose, right? So I scramble together the application uh, that includes going, hassling my previous teachers at VJC to put in a reference and so on, all that stuff. I'm not thinking I'll get in, to be honest. Uh, surprisingly, I got called up for the uh, entrance exam, uh, which I still, um, you have to take a separate exam for, for Cambridge. Uh, I still remember vividly that it was actually in Hua Chong when it was, it was a shock, to be honest, because I see the, the hall or students, they were all about two to two years younger than me. They're all preparing for their A-levels, so they, they picked their preparation. Or the last two years, I've just been running around in the jungle with a <laughs> rifle. <laughs> so I did not remember anything. So I did what I did before, I guess. I spotted questions <laughs> and anticipated. I guess I did well enough. And they called me for interview. And the interview process, it was in a basketball hall. One of my peers was actually in one end of it. And I could hear the questions were getting asked. He was getting asked like, we were having an interview simultaneously. He was getting asked questions like, uh, you want to do aeronautical engineering. So, you know, how does a space shuttle maneuver in space? I was like, and he was, I could hear him, you know, humming and hawing. So I was like, okay, my interview, I'm going to veer away <laughs> from academics. So I focus on, you know, my military experience, and thankfully the interviewer picked it up. Just we just talked about that. Um, I got in, um, not in the college of my, my picking. I checked rejected, so I was like, yeah, okay, fine, whatever, right? Uh, then another school picked me up. So it's there are different colleges within Cambridge, yeah. right? So, um, I told my parents they were thrilled. Um, I, I was excited. But then the next question was like, oh, we don't have enough money to go, right? So back then was 96, 97, um, Asian crisis. So it was, you know, the Singapore dollars really weakened against the pound. Uh, so I hustled, you know, talked to friends, asked friends, parents, if they'll be guaranteed off my loan. It was very naive, but I just tried. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, a partial scholarship came from the UK government with no bond. And that got me on my way. So if I look back, um, that's one of the turning points in my life. And actually, it was really meant to happen, right? Because, you know, I didn't plan for it. So yeah, go. other people <laughs> plan to go to Cambridge for like two, three, four years. <laughs> Correct. And so I'm really thankful because I didn't really prep for it. I say, I think it was meant to be. So I think it's an amazing story. Like I'm saying every part of it, the academic side, even the financial side is something people really prepare for for years. But through some magical way. It all came together in, I don't know, weeks, months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think in the education system in Singapore for OEA levels, you can still try to market uh, at, at the very end, right? Um, and with some luck, you, you script through, right? Um, but certainly not my experience in Cambridge because um, my first exam, I remember staring at the first paper for in Cambridge for 45 minutes because I was shell-shocked. I was like, I never seen these questions before in my life, right? And to, to, to draw a perspective in, in O levels, A levels, this thing called the 10 year series that you buy from bookshops, so past year questions, right? 
and you start to see a pattern there. So, you, you know, the questions repeat itself every few years. But Cambridge was like a shell shock because it's like, to me, it's like they, they, they change the question. It's never the same. Um, and then it dawned on me at that point, um, the, the way of OAA levels is not the way to prepare you for life because life is very unpredictable. Um, and Cambridge prepared me to go back to just first principles, right? Um, you may not seen it before, but go back to the first principle. It doesn't change. And, um, and, and that actually is something that I carried through with me throughout my life now. Yeah. I think that going through something like that, where it feels so miraculous, like I feel like it really affects maybe your perspective or the way you go about life afterwards. So how did um, the experience of getting into Cambridge in that way um, affect your life or your outlook? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think start from the beginning, right? That's the first time I got on a plane and, and live overseas, right? Actually, tell a lie. Um, I actually got on the plane the very first time in the army when we we're going to Brunei. So maybe that counts at all. So, <laughs> um, so it was. It's a very, very different experience. I mean, um, in living, landing on foreign soil, um, and being very, I think, what we call swaku or mountain tortoise, right? You see vapor coming in your mouth because it's cooler climate and so on. And it was like, wow, this is just a different experience altogether. Um, and then um, <laughs> making my way from London and where I landed to Cambridge and then going to the college and um, asking for directions at the college admissions office. And the lady, uh, which was a very sweet English lady, was like, yeah, young man, slow down. I can't understand you, right? So that's because we speak very quickly. Um, we don't enunciate all our words. And 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 that that is also one of the things I have to adapt to, right? Um, I it, it changed me a, diff, a few ways. It changed me to adapt. Um, the English have obviously they are they have a lot on their own culture, their own jokes, and so on, right? I had made the decision then that if I came all the way here, and there's, there's a whole bunch of Singaporeans and Malaysian in Cambridge, as we expect, I did not want to just hang out with them, right? Because what's the point, right? Um, the question is then, how do you break into the community, right? Um, and thankfully, I was pretty decent at football. So I played for college, right? And uh, I think the folks there were quite surprised that the Asian person can play. And that really helped me break, uh, break in, right? Um, and then, you know, the culture of, you know, having a drink after a game and so on, uh, that really helped, uh, helped me settle in and really helped me immerse into the culture. Right. Second, having gone through army, and most of the students in Cambridge, they are from Malaysia or Singapore, they are on scholarships. So that means they skip the army first and go straight in. Uh, I had a chip on the shoulder. I felt that I had to <laughs> have to prove myself. Like not rather prove myself, but more like I have to make up for lost time. Yeah. Because you're older? Because I'm older. I spent two and a half years in the army, forgotten everything, right? But more so the fact that my parents were partially paying for that as well. Mm. And I got serious that I, I, I said, look, this is a, the manner to which I got in told me that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity, right? Take it seriously. And I think that set the tone for me to become serious, right? It used to be a very happy go lucky. I got very serious. I was like, look, I, I need to make something out of this. Yeah. 
And I think from that perspective, it got me to be a little bit more organized and planned. Actually, that was a very low bar to exceed in the first place. So that certainly did shape my uh, me as a being. But also the positive sides are it really expanded my mindset, including what I just, I, I just told you about first principles, to open my mind to all these various cultural differences, job opportunities that's out there, right? Really opened my world and my horizon. Yeah. So did you achieve your goal of getting into like a more international friend group, not just the Singaporeans and Malaysians? I did, actually. So thankfully, the English sometimes, uh, when they get there, they're a bit slow because they drink too much beer. I was still quite fit and fast off the army. So <laughs> I had something to give to the uh, the football team. Plus, I, I found that the other Europeans, especially Eastern Europeans, are very open. So I, I hung up uh, quite a bit with them, uh, but also kept in touch with my friends from Cambridge and, and from Malaysia and Singapore, right? And thankfully so, because uh, the very nice ladies from, uh, from Malaysia, they will cook for me as well, which is quite quite, quite, quite a treat because I was missing uh, home-cooked food, right? And I was wondering, after you were finishing up the army and planning to go to university, what did you have planned for your life? Did you have any specific plans, like any specific career? Or um, any specific goal back then? Yeah. Even before Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so very strangely, at 14 years old, um, I had very clear aspiration to become a re- refinery engineer in a petrochemical plant. Right. How it was does that, that even happen? <laughs> I don't know. I think I think um as growing up, I've always been very fascinated by science, right? For someone who didn't really want to study, you know how it's like, right? Before the school year starts, you buy your textbooks. Yeah. I will pick up the science textbook and really read it cover to cover and finish it, right? Uh, in one city, right? So I always the affinity for that and, and math, um, especially chemistry. As we got uh, to secondary school, I, I, I excel in chemistry. I just could see it, right? And I think I had some exposure to, uh, I think that time the oil industry was uh, booming and so on. And, and that thought of working as a chemical engineer um, was fascinating to me. And maybe also because my horizon was quite limited. I thought chemical engineer, oil industry, right? But actually you can apply to oh, like P- PNG where, you know, um, uh, consumer goods company and so on. So it really stuck in my mind. In first year in Cambridge, you're supposed to do all kinds of engineering, civil and so on. I suck at all of them. Um, the one that really excelled in, I could see was chemical. And strangely, the, the converse is true for my other classmate, right? I really wanted to be a chemical engineer. Um, that actually changed um, when I was in my second or third year in Cambridge. I came back, I did an internship with ExxonMobil in Jurong Island. And I was climbing one of those big long columns, what they call a distillation column, with my hot head and hot. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I remember doing that, and I'm like, oh. And before that, um, the the senior engineer was full time, was walking me around. He said, "Yeah, you know, avoid this area here because a few years ago, um, benzene leaked out of that pipe and killed someone." I'm like, "Hmm, okay." <laughs> oh my. Yeah, so at the decision column, I realized that maybe this is just not for me, right? <laughs> what an internship. <laughs> Life and death. 
Uh, beyond life and death, I saw the engineers around me, those who are doing it full-time for a long time. And I just thought their passion for the subject is unparalleled, right? Uh, and I, I wasn't that into the subject. I was more interested at, at a higher level, like how does this work, you know? Uh, how does our work matter at a higher level, the business level, right? And so I realized that my my my, my interest really lies at, with business and finance, yeah. And that's when I switched and started thinking about alternative careers, yeah. But you were still studying um, chemical engineering. That's right. In Cambridge, you didn't change your major. I guess it's too late at that point. <laughs> yeah, the UK system is quite um, rigid that way. Right. You, yeah, you just go down one path, right? So when, when you graduated, what did you have in mind? Did you want to go back home? Did you want to work overseas in a specific country? Yeah, in, in typical fashion, when I realized that I wanted to switch, it was quite late, switch careers. Um, yeah. Jobs uh, are quite competitive, right? Um, and especially someone coming from uh, my background and when I want to switch to finance, so I no finance background, clearly, right? People have really set their goals in the beginning um, that they want a, I don't know, a finance investment banking job, a consulting job. And they've started doing internships prior to that that set them up for interview, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very behind. I, and thankfully, uh, a lady, uh, 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 a friend of mine in Cambridge who was my senior I sought her help and she was very kind to help me out, you know, help me with my resume, help me with my interviews prep and so on. And uh, I applied to the investment banks um, and I got an internship with uh, Morgan Stanley, right? Uh, at that point, beggars can't be choosers. If they put me in London, great. Put me in Singapore, great. I just want to get in, right? Um, I interviewed the London office and uh, they sent me to Singapore. So I had an internship in Singapore, which then led to a full-time job, Yeah. And the full-time job was in Singapore for all two, three years you spent there? Or did they move you around in between? Yeah, actually, it was actually supposed to be a summer job. So it was supposed to be done by then. But the Cambridge system, it's interesting. Three years engineering, you get a a, um, a bachelor's, right? If you stay in the fourth year, you get a master's in engineering. So I was doing it um, after graduating with my BA, bachelor's. And I was due to go back for my fourth year. But I told the hiring officer then at Morgan Stanley that, look, I, I there's really no point for me to go back and do a fourth year if I'm not going to do engineering. You know, it doesn't make sense, right? At the back of my head, I was thinking as well that I want to come out and work quickly, save money and support my family. And now then you tell us. <laughs> and thankfully, with some phone calls and so on, um, I got a job offer in Hong Kong with Morgan Stanley. Uh, so I stayed on. I actually became the summer analyst that never left. <laughs> so what was the experience um, going back to Singapore, working there, and then that overseas experience working in Hong Kong for the first time? Yeah, so Hong Kong was an excellent experience. It was at that time, I think, compared to Singapore, a larger financial hub, right? Um, and things central action, right? China was picking up as well and so on. And the office is much larger than Singapore. So it's like considered the headquarters for, for Asia, right? Um, so I learned a ton, right? I learned a ton. I met very international uh, employees, uh, bosses and so on, and worked very hard. Met a lot of other investment bankers from other um, banks as well. 
And and uh, I would say I've grown a lot. I remember showing up first day, not knowing how to tie my tie. <laughs> so I was like, yep. Uh, you got a lot to learn. And actually, thankfully, along the way, I think I'm blessed by if I, I met people along the way. So one of the associates that I'm very close friends now said, look, Jeremy, you're good at what you do, but let's, let me take you shopping for clothes, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, um, you know, being, being dressed apart, being dressed professionally and so on, I think it's something that I didn't keep in mind and I grew a ton, right? I think also personally, it was great because Hong Kong is great for a single person. Right, lots of drinking, like lots of uh, you know, going out. Um, so a lot busier compared to Singapore, right? I had definitely have the the interesting contrast because after one year in Singapore, this sem sorry, one out in Hong Kong, they then sent me back to Singapore to kickstart an effort in Singapore. So I had definitely the best of, of both. Um, and then one, once I finished in Singapore, they then sent me to, to to New York, which is a whole new experience altogether. Yeah. What is it like um, living alone in a foreign country like um, in Hong Kong and New York? Was it particularly lonely in one place or the other, or is it sort of just the same? Ah, very interesting question. Um, Hong Kong was easy because it's so small, uh, culturally a bit more similar, right? You still want to get a cultural food, uh, the food that you want. Flight is an easy flight away. It's like Singapore, and you have your friends and, and and so on, right? Um, moving to New York was interesting. And I was, even coming from Hong Kong and Singapore, I was wowed by how large scale things was, things is, right? And still is. Most of the analysts would live, share a place together. Yeah. Well, I, I after going through two and a half years of army and sharing rooms with people, I, I didn't want any of that anymore so i move a bit further out so that the, i can afford the rent but i want to live alone right um and i live in brooklyn which is different from uh new york city itself but i got a place of myself right it can get a bit lonely but not as much because there's a big community of folks that you suffer and work so hard with right and i think at that point i started to being alone has its advantages. Wherever your free time, I sat, where I had free time, I sit down and I really enjoy being with myself, if that makes sense at all, right? I'm not on to my next thing. I have time to think. I like time to collect my thoughts and just being with myself. And I think that's an important part of me growing up because you're only truly comfortable with someone else if you're comfortable with yourself. And that journey to New York and living alone really gave me that space, interestingly. And then I look back, I had a choice to go to Cambridge or Imperial College in London. In my heart, I didn't want to live in London. I wanted some space for myself. So I decided to just move to Cambridge. And I think if I look back and piecing the two together, I'm the kind of person that, yeah, I, I'm outgoing and so on, but I need my own space to retreat to. And at that point, I realized that I said, okay, you're going to be a truly happier person if you have your own space as well and moderated accordingly. I think we talk about loneliness. I think the most lonely part was actually when I decided to move from New York on my own to Chicago. What led to that was actually I work on a IPO of a company called the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. 
so they are my client and um, I'm nothing common with them, right? They're from the Midwest. They talk about games, football, which they use their hands and not their leg. And, you know, I just have nothing common with them. But I think I built a strong rapport that the, uh, the chairman, the, the current CEO now offered me a job then. And I thought at that moment that, look, it's a very interesting opportunity. I get to see through what I've worked on. So I decided to move. <laughs> I knew no one there. Absolutely no one, right? Culturally very different. And it was lonely uh, in the beginning because it was like no one else to go out with, right? And it's a bit too different because it's not as international, I guess. It's not as international, but strangely more welcoming. Very open, very warm. Most of my peers thought I was crazy career suicide to do something like this uh, instead of going to private equity or hedge funds to do something like this and to move to a, a place that they think is a backwater of the US, right? But they're so wrong. I mean, I love the food there. It's a big city, proper jobs. Again, one day I was just running along the park. I saw a whole bunch of people playing football. Just picked up my courage and say, hey, can I join you guys? And then that became my community. It's a whole bunch of French people to Americans to Europeans and all that stuff. So that really uh, helped me settle in. And then later on, you went to do your MBA at Harvard. What made you decide to do an MBA? Uh, the experience of being offered a job by uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange and my experience working in an investment bank made me realize the importance of connections and relationship network. And I'm very ambitious and I want, at that point, I'm still not entirely clear what I want to do, but I knew and, and, and you know, a network is very important. So I spoke to a few people. I recognized the power of the network of Harvard and Stanford. So there was a sole reason why I wanted to apply to business school. So that's why I decided to go. Yeah. And then what was the experience like for you um, coming in with that goal and going through those two years? So Cambridge, I was pretty scared. Let me draw some parallel. I was like, oh my God, I'm a fraud, right? Because I got in by mistake and all these smart people around me. And there are some really bright people over there. Harvard was a combination of really smart people, but also people who came from really established families and means and connection. I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, how am I going to compete with this? That was the immediate thought in my mind. That plagued me for a while. And the business school, the way they grade you is heavily weighted on class participation. So it's 90 people, you discuss, you raise your hands and so on, right? I remember keeping quiet for a few months because all the Americans and English and Europeans sound so intelligent. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think when I got to know them a bit better outside the classroom, and I realized that actually for myself, I know just as much. And I would say that would be one of the turning points and experience, great experience I have in business school, which is actually to put aside that notion that we are inferior. <laughs> Right, that I actually have a lot I can contribute to the discussion as well and have faith and confidence that I can contribute. And I would say that really transforming from a really timid person, Asian background and mindset to someone who will, will speak up and able to think, trust that I can think on the spot and be able to contribute. I think that was one of the big, big takeaways from that. First year was uh, in, in, in Harvard was uh, quite uh, fleeting because... People were trying to 
meet as many people as possible. So it's a lot of high buy. And I did not enjoy that because, you know, there's no deep relationship, right? I remember thinking that, yeah, if that's the case, it's quite shallow. But second year onwards was great because I think everyone, including me, settled down and said, look, <laughs> there's no need to feel so insecure. It's all fine. And I think that's where a lot of deeper relationships get formed. People organize trips to their home country like Colombia and so on. And you have opportunity to just develop a deeper connection with people, right? And I made some very, very good friends along the way. People that are still friends now. And when they pass by Singapore, they look me up. And those friendships are really valuable and relationships that I'll never forget. And actually, as um, many years down the road, it's proven to be very helpful in terms of... Uh, they're, all, they're all very senior people. And, and that's been very helpful in terms of uh, my own career development and so on, right? Yeah, so hopefully that answers your question. I can't remember on a bit, so. I mean, it does. It is also really interesting. Another question I have is like, um, you mentioned the inferiority you felt um, at HVS, but I think you also said that at Cambridge, you didn't feel it as much. But at the same time, you also did mention that you felt like, you know, you were there by mistake. Is there a reason that maybe you felt more inferior at Harvard than when you're at Cambridge? Is it because maybe, I don't know, later when your career actually starts, maybe you start people start to feel more inferior or is it something else? Yeah, let me clarify. I think in those years, I have the notion that, look, I came from very modest means, right? I'm, I'm never, the expectation was that, you know, I'm not going to get to those Ivy League schools and just go to local schools and you're done, right? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the mindset that, that set me thinking, yeah, this is not meant to be. So some of it is fluke. And along the way, I didn't really study much, right? I just studied enough, um, didn't plan for the life. So I think that stuck with me. Um, the manner to which I go in Cambridge emphasized that. The difference between Harvard and Cambridge is at the end of the day, I, I was very competitive. I mean, I'm very competitive. In Cambridge, at least I can rely on my smarts and my hard work, Okay. At Harvard, I realized that they're both smart and they come from uh, established families with established networks, right? Which we know makes a difference. So that part was like, oh my God, how am I supposed to compete with that, right? So I think that hopefully that that explains a little bit better in terms of why I felt uh, differently. And I think like the realization you had is actually really powerful. I feel like if you have a change in the mindset where you actually feel like you're capable, you actually start to start acting like you are. I feel like it's more of the mindset than the actual capability. (laughs) That's certainly right. And I observed that as well, because in the Morgan Stanley analyst pool, that's all kinds of people. Yeah. I mean, people, different nationalities and so on. The Americans are just natural or great at speaking and marketing themselves. It's part of the educational system. In Singapore, you know, when we enter the school system, just shut up and sit there and listen, right? So, So the mindset is very, very different, right? So what we associate with growing up as good Asian student is you listen and you don't say much. And actually, as we all realize, that's really important skill set to be able to articulate your thoughts and put forth your point of view. You may be smart, but you can't articulate it and communicate to a wider group of people. You're not enrolling people. So that jump for me was, was quite critical during Morgan Stanley as well as doing Harvard. Right. And and just to add on to, you know, what you you you're saying earlier. Yeah. And then after you graduated from Harvard, you worked in, I guess, like mainly finance for 10 years or so. And what made you move into venture capital? 
Actually, I worked in finance for about 15 years before I jumped. I graduated 2006 from Harvard Business School. Uh, 12 years, uh, I guess, uh, 2018, uh, I started uh, Timban. So I was just talking to someone about this uh, because they asked me why you make a jump. I always had the entrepreneurial itch. Yeah. Um, but I, I think because coming from um, modest means and I had to support my family and so on, uh, a student debt to pay down, I never really had the courage to, to step out because of money consideration, to be honest. Because what if I fail, you know, plus on top of that, that you're doing something completely different from your peers and so on, all that stuff. Then in 2016, I offered or was offered a promotion by my company, then Trafigura, to go to Geneva to run the investment team globally before coming back, right, to Asia to run the business. That's a great promotion, right? Um, my wife looked at me and she said, you don't look very happy. <laughs> and then something else happened. My late father passed away suddenly. And uh, I think that those combinations make me reevaluate my priorities uh, very carefully, right? Uh, at that point in time, I've been investing in a lot of startups uh, on the side, on my, on my own PA, uh, helping some of my classmates uh, from Harvard break into Asia. And I really loved it. I was getting up at 6 a.m. to do calls with uh, LA and New York. And I wasn't getting paid. All I had was my investments in there, right? I love the energy of being part of a team that has a vision to disrupt something, to do something better, right? And, and that, that got me to pay attention to the Southeast Asia um, ecosystem a bit more. And I had a few realizations. I said, look, this has legs to run. And I firm believe that the next leg of growth for Southeast Asia is uh, innovation, right? So we've done well importing Western IPs and manufacturing cheaply and reselling it. But I think it's time we have the talent. Uh, we're up the chain enough that we can do that. And I really want to play a part in that. And that firm belief also stems from the fact that I have two young kids now, you know, she's uh, one's 11, one's eight. Um, I don't know what they're going to do, but if they want to be entrepreneurs, I want to give them the option to be able to do that in their own home country, right? And to do that, you need a thriving ecosystem that you see in the US and so on. And me and Muli want to play a part in that. So, and we saw an opportunity in B2B as well, which was very clear. We did some work on that. And it's very rare, Amanda, that your head, your heart, and your gut aligned. And that did that for me for the very first time. So I knew I had to go for it. What were your first angel investments before you started Tin Man? And how did you get into angel investing? I invested mostly uh, with classmates of mine at Harvard. Yeah. Um, so we invested in a company called Gasbook. They're disrupting the uh, hotel. Uh, so essentially, um, Boutique hotels, you know, two or three hotels, they, uh, their loyalty program uh, doesn't quite work compared to the chains, right? So they created this program with cashback that really um, helped them retain their customers and really not rely on the OTAs like um, the Expedia and so on. We charge them, you'll be shocked, 20% commission, right? So I, I started with those. I invested in one called Sunseed uh, in, in that's a later stage investment. The exited is a solar power company in Singapore that was sold to another strategic. So that's how I got started, right? Um, through friends and through my own connections. And then when you decided to start Tin Men, how long did it take from thinking about potentially starting your own VC fund 
to um, firmly making a decision like I'm going to do it. <laughs> I think the entrepreneurial itch was always there. The pool wasn't there because it's like, what am I going to do, right? Should I start my own company? Should I start a fund? All that stuff. I think meeting Muli helped precipitate a lot of this thinking and discussion. Uh, number one, uh, actually, we didn't talk about venture. We at first aligned values right? because we know that the partnership is going to be long run, uh, long term, and that things will change and we need to ad- adapt. But if we align on values, that will uh, power us through the many years to come. Then we started developing the thesis and digging into data about B2B. We made some investments in B2B to test it out as well to see whether it will work. And through that time, there were a couple of things. Personally, I had to come to terms with my relationship with risk. Imagine, right? I came from big companies, right? Yeah. Sounds like... Very big companies. Very big companies, right? With very good salary and very good benefits. <laughs> yeah. I would say that was very daunting for me. Very, very daunting. I ran the numbers. At that time, I had a mortgage, two young kids. My wife was also an entrepreneur. So, so that, that factor in. And I would say that even though the numbers sort of stack up, if I'm honest, at that point where I decided to go ahead, which is probably like six to eight months down the road after conceptualizing the idea and so on, I still wasn't completely comfortable. And then there was an element of getting over the fact that this might not work. In my mind, coming from a big company, there's no room for failure. There's no such thing as failure. And I never came to terms with the fact until recently that some things could fail. You never know. In my mind, there's only one path. And then separately, it was convincing my wife, who is extremely supportive, that this is what I want to do. And because she had enough of me complaining about being a corporate person. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's more seriously that, that yeah, this got legs to run and that I will be truly happy doing this. So I think I answer your question in terms of like, it's between eight months to a year before I decided. But I think the truth be told, looking back, that conversation about risk and failure, I never really got comfortable with it when I took the plunge. It's only recently that I said, oh, okay. After going through many ups and downs, I suddenly, did, all right, I told Muli, all right, this doesn't work, we try something else. I said, Muli, something has changed. I don't know how to explain it. And he said, yeah, I think you're truly an entrepreneur now, right? <laughs> After all this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You finally done it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, what is the most difficult part of your job as a VC? Uh, I'll touch on a few segments, okay? One is not specifically about VC, right? I think I talked about it earlier. Along the first few years, I never got really square with the fact that the fear of failure and my relationship with risk. And that... Honestly, it's been one of the hardest part because everything, every time things doesn't go as smoothly or straight line, which never does in startups, <laughs> I get very stressed. So overcoming that really was the toughest part of the journey in my mind. I think the, if I were to talk specifically about VC, the hardest part is actually staying on your conviction in terms of your thesis and in terms of the kind of how the relationship we want to have with our founders. It's very difficult because you think about it, we are B2B focused, 10 companies per fund. So it's completely different from what all the other funds are doing, right? Five, six years ago, we're telling people pathway to profitability and people are laughing at us. It was this B2B nonsense you're talking about, right? So staying the course 
And having conviction in that is probably one of the hardest things to do when the rest of the market is telling you completely something else. We are also very clear that we are not just an investor with our founders. We want a relationship with our founders. Yeah. Uh, and that be with them and, and they're not just a statistic for us. Their success is our success. And again, that's a very different mindset for other VCs where they have a much larger portfolio. And to do that, it's just very tough. It's very time consuming. And sometimes we wonder, are we heading down the right path? So staying with your conviction, we're trying to do something completely different on the market when the market is telling you something else. Well, I'm also curious about another thing. And I ask this to a few guests every few episodes. And um, it's what is the biggest personal sacrifice you've made to get to where you are today? Any personal sacrifice you've made during your career? Interesting question. The pers- biggest personal sacrifice. I think um, when I was working for big corporates and so on, right? You get used to a certain lifestyle. I came from um, modest means, so it's okay to ratchet back and so on, right? I think as a family, we were very conscious about what do we want to spend on going forward. And I have a extremely blessed um, married to uh, my wife, uh, Gail, who is, she was an investment banker before and she has means and so on. And, she was completely on the same page as us in terms of, look, what do we prioritize and so on, right? And that sometimes can be a tough journey because but it's very clear making the investments in your kids. And these are things that you actually don't need to, 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 to actually, uh, uh, those are nice to have, right? Um, actually, nothing about it. My biggest sacrifice, I think, is actually personal time. Right. Mm. Let me explain that. I think that is more the personal time part because building a business and a VC in a and trying to come up with a model that's completely different takes a lot of conviction, takes a lot of time. Yeah. Okay. Um and being able to spread the time between work, family, your spouse, and yourself requires great discipline and I would say the the, the 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 sacrifice here is being able to really be square yourself. Like, look, where do you want to spend your time now, right? So in the past, I have a lot more free time. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll watch Netflix <laughs> yeah, and be with it. But that discipline and that being able to compartmentalize and being able to say that this is a time for a family and being um, efficient at work, I think is one of the sacrifices that we make um, for ourselves and for our families. And so speaking about difficulties, I mentioned to you earlier that we have this new segment here on Backscoop where we have you know, our readers or our podcast listeners who are founders drop in any questions they have or anything that they're going through. And I have one question that I have submitted from a founder who also is going through his or her MBA and I guess would appreciate your advice. And that is, um, so I guess a bit about his profile. He's an angel-backed startup founder, and he's saying that his startup is taking off, but so is his coursework at university. He is considering, or he or she is considering dropping out for this, but hasn't made a decision yet because they're on their final year of college and saying, I want to drop out is like committing a crime, especially when you're a family of JD and MBA grads. 
I laugh because uh, I can totally relate from, um, uh, is it he or she is coming from, right? I have no idea, yeah. but yeah, yeah. whoever. <laughs> yeah, not laughing at he or she, her, his or her problem. Because I don't have that problem because uh, my parents never had a, a, a BA even, so. <laughs> not even a <laughs> BA to begin with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but nevertheless, it's not, uh, it's, it's not a small problem, right? I think I speak with some context because I've ever since I entered uh, JC, it's uncharted territories for my parents. And along the way, I made career decisions that are that buck the trend and so on, including also leaving my job to start Tin Man. So I've gone through a lot of these considerations of like, you know, how will I be viewed by uh, my peers and so on and so forth? You know, still private equity, why do you go take up this corporate job in Chicago? I think at the end of the day, you're only truly answerable to yourself. The happiness from social affirmation and social acceptance is temporary. Your friends move on. Your circle of friends will move on as well. And it's really you and what you want and what's going to make you happy that's truly important here. And I think that's where being alone and being comfortable with yourself will truly unearth what's going to drive your happiness and a sense of accomplishment. So I would say that a few things. One, A, that impression, is it a crime? Maybe something that he or she is sitting there in isolation thinking about it, you know? Um, perhaps go have an open conversation with the parents and say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. You'd be surprised. This may not be, this, 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 notion that this is a crime may not be even on your minds as well, right? Um, so that's one. Second, before you do that, ask yourself what truly is you want to do, right? And I think the litmus test here is that if you don't do this a few years down the road, are you going to regret it, right? Um, and I know it's hard, but I had a life-changing event with my father passing suddenly. But that moment got me to think, a lot of things don't matter anymore. What is the very basic fundamentals that matter to you? So you think, I'm not saying engineer a life crisis, but rather, you know, can you cut out and have the mindset that if the world is going to end, you're going to die tomorrow, what are the things that really matter to you, right? Um, adopt that mindset and write it down and then be very clear for yourself that these are things that is important to you. And with that, then you can see quite clearly, is as though you're, Strip, strip completely bare uh, what's important to you and then you match accordingly and be truthful to yourself, right? What, what the answer you should just be square with and talk to your friends and your parents about it. People, some friends, no, don't ignore their advice. Their friends and parents, their you know, advice you should take, but you know, uh, look them in. Being isolated and being think, thinking about this in isolation is very scary and it's counterproductive. Now that you talk about this um, question, I'm realizing I can relate to it a bit because I realized that I didn't go to university at all and my parents did get their BAs. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bar was a bit hard as well for me. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think I was also in a similar spot. So I think I told my family that I'd take the gap year before I started back scoop. So I did that. But it was uh, telling them that I'm not going to go back for the next two years. That was the difficult part. Even before the startup took off, I mean, I told them that, look, it's July and 
I'm going to quit my job, which I was doing for my first gap year. And on the second gap year, and yes, I will take a second gap year. I want to start my own startup. And I told them that if by December, there is no traction, no nothing, and it was the worst startup ever, I'll go back. I'll go and, you know, attend university. But yeah. then if not, I told them that I'll just continue. And they were not that happy about it. But I think what I realized after a long few months of some arguments, a lot of deep discussion was that at the end of the day, it wasn't really about going to college or not, but it was more about like, are you going to be able to live the life that they want for you? And not the exact picture perfect life for you, but like the standard of life that they hope that you can live. And then after I realized that, right, it's like more of a parenting thing than a you have to go to college thing. Yeah. I'm glad you shared that because you're absolutely right. Where they're coming from is actually where you're coming from. You want success in your life and passion. They also want that for you, right? They just have the notion that actually getting a degree is necessary and you can't blame them, right? But if you then bridge the gap and say that we're both coming from the same place and there are more than one ways to get there, then the conversation is very different. So the person who submitted this should try to bridge the gap and say that we're all coming from the same place and we'll figure out from there. I think that's another good point. Like, I think I was only able to bridge that gap only after a few months. I didn't really realize it at the beginning. At the first part, it was quite frustrating. It's like, why don't they understand that, you know, blah, 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 blah. But after a few months, I realized they're coming from a good place. And what I started to do was showing them, like, how is my startup progressing? So I would, like, um, show them who was subscribing, how many subscribers we have, what I was doing. And I think after they realized that, oh, this is actually not so bad and it's a possible viable career. Um, they're actually okay with it. And now I think they're the most supportive people. Maybe it's in some point in my parents' heart, maybe they still want me to get a degree just so I don't get looked down on by some people one day. But I think it's really for that, not really for like, I need to get a degree. It's They're always just worried about something, your life or you, you being looked down on other people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, that's something certainly you can consider, right? But I think it's very clear they have unwavering love for you. And I mean, bringing back to the question that your subscriber asked, you know, look at you. You went for your choice and clearly you were very happy. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think the core part is you yourself, which you mentioned, which is, are you happy with your choice to begin with before wondering what other people think? Correct, correct. Yeah. And I told you that I along the way... I finally embraced risk and my relationship with money change and so on. I think one aspect is that I'm extremely happy and very proud of what we do here. One of the things that Muli and I have in mind, this is not just going to be a VC fund. This is a vehicle, team is a vehicle to which everyone that joins us can be the best version of themselves, right? And that really pulls us forward every single day. That ability to be able to contribute to so many people's life is really true happiness. Like when you help someone, you really feel happy, right? I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. I'm very thankful that I am. Um, it's still early days, but I'm very thankful that we did this. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm excited to see what where the next years take you. And I think to close the episode, I want to ask one question I ask everybody for the podcast. And that is outside of work, what is one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life at any time of your life? So there's no specific time frame. Oh, I derive a lot of joy with my friends, my family, my spouse, my kids. And being able to have that going with a fund is not easy. So 
I've been able to get some balance along the way, but keeping that intimacy and that quality of relationships and sharing joy and downs together with this group of people is something that I have, but it's something that I realized I would keep investing in and it, because it, it cuts both ways. And then that is something I'm very thankful for because we are a function and a collection of the people around you. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast and the conversation was just really great. Thank you for opening up and for sharing so much about your life. Thank you. I hope to see you in person soon. So. <laughs> I hope so too.